Hello, welcome to the Cappers Employed podcast. Joining me in conversation for this episode was Keith Smith from Bonhoeffer Capital Management. In this episode, Keith gives an overview of his fund and investment philosophy. He also talks about two stocks he's invested in, which he thinks have great long-term potential. I really enjoy listening to him and I think you will too. Before we jump into this episode, please make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. So without further interruption from me, please enjoy my conversation with Keith. Hi Keith, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. Can you give a brief introduction to the Bonhoeffer Fund? When did you start and also where does the name come from? Sure. So I started the Bonhoeffer Fund in uh, 2017. It was a joint venture with a uh, a group, uh, Willow Oak Asset Management. I basically was, at the time, I, I've got a 25-year background in business appraisal and so I've done business appraisal as a uh, my main line of business for a while. I started out in in the Air Force, have an engineering background, and got into appraisal through through my through interest over time. Got an MBA at UCLA. Worked at Price Waterhouse on California. Worked for a very large appraisal firm here in Rochester, New York. And then what I've done over time is I had that interest, and the folks at, at Willow Oak asked me whether I wanted to do a fund for the, with them, and I said yes. Um, one of the advantages was that they take care of all the sort of back office type of admin stuff. So there's two parts of running a fund. There's actually picking the investments and talking with investors and those kinds of things, which are things that I enjoy doing. And then there's more of the admin slash regulatory aspect, which um, I didn't have a whole lot of interest in actually getting a whole lot involved with. What Willowoke provided was a platform so that I could actually focus on the investment and focus on interacting with customers. And so that that's the genesis of the Bonhoeffer Fund. Um, again, so my background has been business appraisal for 20 years. So basically applying that to, and, and that in those cases, primarily to private businesses, but looking at public businesses with the same types of frameworks that we've looked at from a private perspective. And then in terms of the name, the Bonhoeffer Fund, basically named after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German theologian. He has a very interesting life. Um, I think I've identified with him in regards to a lot of his thoughts and ideas were sort of countercultural at the time. His his focus at the time was um, he grew up in a in an aristocratic family in Germany. He basically became a Christian at a time that the Nazis were rising to power, and so there was a huge inherent conflict in that alone. And he really felt really felt he had to um, sacrifice personal sacrifice to actually. Um, live out his beliefs. And I believe that I believe that personally also, but I also believe from a from a value investing perspective and from investing that there's also an aspect there too. Are you really gonna believe invest in what you believe despite the short term pain? And in most cases you get long term gains, sometimes you don't. That philosophy and his overall, you know, approach to an outlook on life really resonated with me. And that's sort of the, the name of the fund and basically we try to find our focus of the fund is finding situations that go against the market that may be a little bit 
you know, in currently in opposition what's going to it, but we've evolved over time. Um, our first initial set of areas have been primarily special situations where we try to identify stocks that, that have a, either some aspect to them that's original. One of the, we have three different frameworks we're looking at there. From that perspective, one is called compound mispricings. This is where you get where both the firm is undervalued and the security and the capital structure is firm is undervalued. And so we've invested in a few of those. In addition, we've also invested what we call mischaracterized companies. Those are companies that may be affiliated with one industry, but really are not, have different characteristics beyond that industry. An example of that could be a lot of the auto retailers. The auto retailers are tied to automobile companies, automobile industry, which is very cyclical, but they can have some very non-cyclical characteristics and some things that are really nice themselves. They're not capital intensive. Most of their financing is provided by other people. So those, those, that's an example of that. And the last aspect are what I call private LBOs. Those are situations where companies have a decent, have a good, uh, you know, have a good ability to generate a lot of revenue. And so in essence, you're able to get the effect of an LBO by using leverage in the market. And that's especially relevant today, given the low interest rates. Um, those companies have a tendency to be pretty volatile in our portfolio. We limit those to a certain percentage of the portfolio. Recently, we've added an additional sort of strategy or theme that we look at, and that's really um, consolidation in fragmented industries. If you look at a lot of companies over time, a lot of the growth has come from basically consolidation where you can roll up particular companies um, and take advantage of cost synergies in various industries. So for example, one would be like in television and radio broadcasting, television broadcasting, although it's a declining industry, some firms in that industry have actually been able to increase in value quite significantly, increase their free cash flow because of this synergistic effect. Another one would, is cable, which people are probably interested, probably familiar with, with John Malone. So looking for those kind of situations and then you know having them as part of the portfolio. And our portfolio is not only in the U.S., but we also look overseas. One of the specific areas where we've had a lot of investment um, has been Korea. Korea, I think, is going through a transformational time in regards to a transforming from primarily a family-owned and controlled businesses where the families are running the businesses to more professional management. And there's a lot of pressure from the government and other agencies to sort of unlock a lot of hidden value that's in the area. So that's one area where we, we have a, a good amount of investment. But we also have been adding more recently to more of these uh, consolidators and fragmented markets where I think there's also some opportunity. So can you talk us through two companies in your portfolio which you think have great long-term potential? Sure. So um, one I'll talk about at this point is one that we've sold, but I think illustrates sort of the, the special situations, compound mispricing um, that we, in essence, is there. I, I guess we still own a piece of it. But this company, it's a company that's called um, Latte Chilsung. They're the largest beverage manufacturer in South Korea. And we got involved with this company. It's an interesting business. And what they've gone through in Korea, they have these transactions called holding company transactions. In Korea, a lot of the companies are structured so that typically a series of subsidiaries, and there's a lot of cross holdings between the subsidiaries. And what a holding company transactions allows companies to do is that allows them to aggregate all of their cross holdings into a company that basically just holds, holds positions in other companies. And allows you to get pure play access to some of the subsidiaries. So Latte Corp went through this. This is also driven by 
an estate tax issue in Korea because you have a lot of the patriarchs or the people that originally put together these conglomerates are getting to the age where they're passing away. And there's a very high estate tax in Korea. And the way that a lot of the families can basically raise capital is primarily by selling their stock because they don't have a lot of liquid capital outside that. And what this allows the, com- the families to do is to aggregate all their cross holdings into one company so they could then sell those to, um, to basically pay the estate tax. So what happens here is you get some very interesting opportunities. We invested in a company called Latte Chilsung. And in Korea, there's also another wrinkle to this, as you can imagine, these special situations can get complex, is that they have both preferred and common stocks, but the preferred stocks in Korea are different than the preferred stocks in the United States. The preferred stocks in Korea are primarily uh, comp- non-voting common stocks. And typically those can sell, like when we bought the company, it sold at like a 60 to 70% discount to the common. It went through this holding company transaction. And by going through the holding company transaction, what we received back is we received one preferred share in the holding company, which represents the investments that were swept them into that company. And we retained about 0.6 shares of the, um, of the original Latte Chilson. We doubled our money primarily within three to six months as a result. We ended up doing is we were actually able to the hold co, both the preferred and the common stock were selling at a premium to the then that asset value. We ended up selling that, but we held on to the subsidiary, which still has a good amount of value because in essence it's a combination of both the, the largest beverage company in Korea plus a very large real estate um, asset that they're working to unwind at this point. So in essence, what these holding company transactions have done is they've actually been able to unlock some of the hidden value. When you look at a lot of companies in Korea, you'll see a lot of hidden value. And you really need these types of external events to really catalyze and unlock some of that value. So that's that's what happened in the case of the Latte Chilson. The other position that we've got, which is more along the lines of a consolidation type play, which is very interesting, it's a company called Ashteed. Ashteed is an equipment leaser. And this company has many of the characteristics of, let's say, some other internet companies in the regards that it basically has huge economies of scale. So what Ashti does is they lease equipment to for construction equipment on a short-term basis to various players in, in, in local markets. So this equipment leasing market is a very local market, very fragmented. Ashti has an 8% market share. The other big player in the market has about a 10% market share. So combined, they have 20%, but there's a huge amount of additional markets that are out there. And they get huge economies of scale in local markets because they can use the same infrastructure to distribute and rent this equipment to players in those local markets. And so what this really provides is it provides a real long-term organic growth that's really sustainable. I estimate the sustainability is probably 15 to 20% growth per year. That's roughly what the ROEs of these companies have been. And given that the company is tied to a cyclical business, primarily construction, there's times when the valuation has come down to be less than 10 times free cash flow. Right now, it's probably 15 times, which I think is still still a good price. But the interesting thing about these kinds of businesses is there's times, especially if you have businesses that are tied to other cyclical businesses, is that you can find times when the market will just... um, treat these as though it's a cyclical business, but the business, you look at the economics as not as cyclical as what people think. So that's an example of Ashteed, and those are the types of themes we're looking for. We've also found that type of characteristics, like I mentioned before, in television broadcasting, 
auto dealerships and also in some retail names. And so that's sort of what our focus has been now is focusing on these companies that have large amounts of growth that are selling for reasonable multiples, most likely in the mid single digits to mid double digits, but then getting growth, you know, going forward in probably the mid double digits and or higher. And these are basically businesses that I think the market has left to its own because in essence, what the market is focused on now is a lot of these internet related companies, which have similar internet and and technology companies that have a lot of similar types of economic characteristics that are very good, but they're selling at multiples that are much higher. So in essence, we've tried to focus on has been on companies that have business model similarities to a lot of the highly priced technology companies, but also are maybe spaces that not necessarily in those spaces, but maybe in other types of markets. And so the internet's also provided some interesting aspects to this, and then it's created some fragmentation and allows for more sort of reconsolidation in certain areas, especially in the retail, some of the retail names that we've looked at. Are you finding plenty of investment opportunities today, or is it getting a, a bit more difficult? Well, for a while it was more difficult, but I think looking at using the framework of consolidation and looking five years forward, I mean, one thing I think that's my framework initially was more of looking at maybe the next year or two in terms of going forward. But one framework that I've tried to focus on has been, okay, let's take a look at this business. If we can get comfortable with what's the business going to look like five years from now, and then try to estimate what the growth rates would be. And the key thing is spending a lot of time and understanding where the growth is coming from, understanding where the drivers of the growth are, and is that really supportable? Because I think you can find situations where currently the market is not reflecting potential growth. And that's where I think I find some real disconnects between potential values of these businesses if things go according to plan and what the current market prices are, especially in situations where the company has a legacy business but the future business is, is going to significantly and almost transform the business. And you can sort of see that in, for example, we hold a telecommunication company that's doing that right now where they've got a plan. And what's happened over time is you can see the incentive. First of all, they had a plan. They got external financing from a private equity group. And now they're actually starting to hire people to actually implement the plan. And you can sort of see this over time. But if you look at it as a specific snapshot in time, you don't see it, but you can see them building up capability to do this. But at this point, it's still not reflected in the stock price because it's reflected in the stock price as their current operations, not this new, this new plan and that's been financed and now is being staffed to basically um, have this amount just sort of roll out over time. So th- those are the kinds of things I think that we've been able to find where you really need to take a look at what's going to happen in the future which is where, what really drives stock prices to begin with, as opposed to looking at what's happening now. A lot, in a lot of cases, what's happening now is already reflected in the stock prices. So it really becomes more of an exercise of trying to say, okay, well, what's, what's a reasonable expectation for what's going to happen in the future? Thanks, Keith, for sharing those two companies. Are you a keen reader? If so, what book have you read recently that stood out for you? I do read quite a bit. Uh, I really like financial history. Um, and there's a, a few things that I think what, for folks that are interested in that, the, the one book that's really influenced me a lot has been, um, there's a book called, uh, from a financial history perspective, a book called uh, The Crash and Its Aftermath. It's actually a book about a very detailed history about the Great Depression. On um, the beginning of the Great Depression, the 1929 through the early 30s, the author goes through an exhaustive description of 
not only each the each of the capital markets, the bond markets, the stock markets, but then goes in into industry by industry, stock by stock, descriptions of what happens in each one of the years. And so it's an it's like reading sort of a compendium of newspaper articles of what actually happened. So that's probably the best sort of history that I've seen in that type of a format. I wish there were more of those types of books around. In my mind, it, it has not only the story or the narrative, which is very important, but has a lot of the details that backing up that. And you can sort of see that and sort of come to your own conclusions about maybe certain segments of the markets, which, which of the businesses did best, which of the businesses did worse. So you really can pull a lot of conclusions out of it because it not only has a narrative story, but has a lot of the detail that's behind it. Another book I've read, read just recently, which is very good, it's a book called um, Boom and Bust by William Quinn and John Turner. They basically have written a book on where they've taken a look at bubbles. They've come up with a theory of here's what really causes bubbles. And then they go through history and they go through all the major bubbles that have happened in history and look at each, look at the, the aspects of they call the, the bubble triangle um, in terms of the, the specific you know, inputs into a bubble. And, and I found that to be a really great book. Another, another good source for financial history, if anyone's interested, is there's a website out there called Investor Amnesia. It's curated by a gentleman named Jamie Catherwood, um, and he's, he has a lot of really good history stuff from that perspective. But I think one thing that investors can really take advantage of is just take a look at history and really look at history as not necessarily a specific um, roadmap of what's going on, but more just getting general principles from history and then applying that to today. Um, and, and going forward. So I think it really captures a lot of the psychology of the market that can really be applied today. So I think there's a lot of real interesting areas in terms of history from that perspective. And you can probably, you know, we could probably spend a whole podcast just talking about that, but that that's definitely an area that I've been interested in. Some of the books that I've read that have been good. Also, people are interested in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a number of really good books put out by about him and his story. And I think it's there's actually been some a number of different books. There's one that's really more detailed, you know, a few hundred pages that can do a lot of detail of the story. But then there's also it ranges the range from that to one where there's actually like a comic book type of a type of presentation of what his story is. So that's also from that perspective. But yeah, no, those are I really do enjoy reading, um, and it provides me a, a basis and sort of a framework to think about various companies and think about various ideas out there. And those are the types of things that, that I enjoy. I, I also become more appreciative of people that have put together narratives and how difficult it is to write. I, mean, I do write a quarterly letter and it's always been a challenge. I mean, I've historically been more of a quantitative kind of guy and really appreciate narrative and the amount of time it takes to sort of put stuff together. But that's how most people communicate with each other is through narratives. And narratives is also a very important aspect of investing because that's how people are going to look at stocks and companies is through narratives. And one thing you may want to ask yourself when you're going through companies, when you look at them is what is the narrative? What is the story of this company? And is just if the story will resonate with you and resonate with other investors, then that's how, that's how stocks over time can really increase in value is basically by taking the facts on the ground putting together with narrative and where the strongest stories come up with is you've got a story with a lot of detailed background. That's why I think I really like that book, The Crash and Its Aftermath, and the fact that it does have a great story of the Great Depression, 1929, and going into the Great Depression, what happened to all these stocks, what happened to 
but then it also has facts to back it up. So it's sort of that combination of quantitative fact and story that really creates, I think, a very compelling narrative, compelling ability for people to really understand and get a deep understanding of what's really going on. Yeah, those are really good uh, book recommendations. I'm a, I'm a big fan of reading about financial history myself, so <laughs> I've added them to the list. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and the Bonhoeffer Fund? Yeah, so so I'm uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at a, the Bonhoeffer Fund has a Twitter account. I think I'm Bonhoeffer KDS at Bonhoeffer Fund. We also have a, a web a website Bonhoeffer Fund. This again, the the fund is for. So sort of accredited investors and all that we're saying here is more for informational purposes from that perspective. So in essence, those are the, those are the two places. And I also, um, you can also reach me, um, Twitter is probably the best place. And I'm always interested in just talking with people about financial history, any kind of in, you know, investment ideas that are associated with the themes we, t- we discussed here. Um, I'm always interested in trying to hear other people's opinions and trying to sort of see how that matches up with reality because part of the overall due diligence process that we're all doing as investors is trying to find people that disagree i find it interesting to find people that disagree with you and trying to find out okay that a lot of times that'll point out weaknesses in the thesis or the idea that you have that you may not have known it may not change your mind of what you're going to do but at least it makes you aware of potential alternatives that, that could be opposite to your thesis, and you can watch out for signposts of that actually happening. And that can be a, a trigger for starting to maybe take a look at, okay, do I have as much conviction in this idea versus not? Because in essence, what you're doing when you're buying a stock is you're buying into a story, and the story probably has multiple ways of playing out. What you're really trying to find out is, okay, trying to say, okay, this story can play out, let's say, in one of three different ways, and then you just look for for road signs along each one of those stories and which way does it seem to be going. If it seems to be going in a certain direction, if it's going in the direction you expect, then then that's fine. But the ones where I spend a good amount of time on is saying, okay, the story's not going in the direction I expect. And are there other views out there that would say, okay, well, maybe this is could lead to a to a decline. And then and then try to play through that and sort of say, okay, what is the evidence to show that it's going one way versus the other? So I think that's for me, it's been a really helpful, and I really appreciated folks that have reached out from other podcasts and other types of situations where um, I have gotten um, people just interacting with me. And I, I, I just enjoy the interaction. That's part of just the kind of investor that I am. So, no, I, I appreciate um, you inviting me on here, John. This has really been a been a great experience. Been a real pleasure to listen to you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Keith. All right, great. <laughs>